Welcome to No Compromises, a peek into the mind of two old web devs who have seen some things. This is Joel. And this is Aaron. Our backgrounds are a little different when it comes to our, our development history. For example, I, I've tend, tended to work either alone or on small teams. And I know, Aaron, in your past lives, you've worked in larger organizations, kind of different levels within the teams. And I know one of the areas this sometimes comes up is when we talk about like access to production. And maybe I have a little more liberal view of who should have access and how that access should be doled out than you do. And I think some of that just has to do with our backgrounds and the different types of projects and teams we worked in. So why don't why don't we talk about this today? I'm sure we're not the only ones that have talked about or have thought about what is the right level of access in production for a developer. But uh, let's let's give it a shot here today. Well, I think one of the first um, questions I would like to ask is, um, what's the reason for the access? And I think it boils mm-hmm. down to two things: troubleshooting, or yeah. or doing things. So I know that doing things is kind of what I mean, like executing. Can you be more specific? Nope, nope. <laughs> like executing something like, you yeah, know, I'm okay. going to go and tinker and do a sort of task or mm-hmm. I need to alter this file or I need to change configurations or something like that. Yeah. Um, so for to me, those are two separate reasons to kind of consider and understand. Mm-hmm. And, and so I want to focus on uh, the easier one first, I think would be troubleshooting. You know, should devs have access to production for troubleshooting? And I think you're right. It does mean it, it's a it is a difference between the size of the team and what the roles are. But what has your experience been for troubleshooting uh, on on the server? Yeah. Have you had to do that a lot. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of going back to the earliest days of deploying PHP applications to production. You know, generally where I would start, I, something goes wrong or something isn't working quite right, is to look at the server logs. Right. So you you know that. Generally, it depends on how the server is set up, but it might even require some privileged access if those logs exist in a, in a, in a folder that doesn't my specific login user doesn't have access to. But that's, that's kind of probably the most common scenario the, for troubleshooting is I, I would start there. I just need to look at the logs. But beyond that, the, the other place where sometimes troubleshooting is useful is, um, you know, the, the old expression with computers is like, did you just turn it off and turn it back on? That's like <laughs> a common way to troubleshoot things. So, you know, maybe it's restarting the web server, it's restarting the database, it's restarting the PHP process. But those are kind of the two big things that I historically have wanted access to production in the scope of troubleshooting. Well, I think I think that definitely solidifies the difference between our experience and size of teams then, mm-hmm. because uh, when you said logs right away, I, in my head, I was screaming like, why would you keeping, why would you be keeping logs on that server? Why aren't you offloading them with some sort of syslog process or using yeah. Logly or any of those tools? And, and then you set up the access to those logs specifically with who needs to look at those. And yeah. so, um, and I think that probably happens a lot more with larger teams, but I, I don't think it should be restricted to the size of your team. Meaning that if you're even working on something by yourself, consider, do I really want to be on here, like looking at these logs and stuff like that? Or if there's a two-person team, think about the junior developer. If I give them permission to access the logs, what other things am I giving them permission to do and things <laughs> yep. like that? And, and then the other thing for like restarting services, again, I think it really has to do with like, are you the only person that would notice that? 
Or uh, are there other people on the team that would be like, why did our alerting system suddenly say, you know, Nginx has stopped and restarted? That shouldn't okay. happen. Yeah. And, you know, suddenly there's a message that goes off to the ops team or something like that. And I, I would say that um, I'll argue with you a little bit. Turning on and off again is like a Band-Aid or sticking your head in the sand because I, 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 I can think of like almost every single time I've went that route, it came back. Sure. And, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. It's not a permanent it's, solution. Yeah. It's so do, solve the problem. Stop trying yeah. to, you know, push it off is you, you'll thank me later. Trust me, you know, to solve it now. You know, another dimension, probably besides just team size, is the size of the infrastructure. Because, you know, as you were talking about offloading logs or aggregating them somewhere else, like you would have to do that if you had more than one web server. Because right. like, where would you look? You'd have to ha- like, are you going to tail logs if you have 10 web servers against all of them? No, you, you, it would, you would automatically be aggregating them somewhere. So yeah, these are, these are processes that probably happen on smaller projects, smaller teams. But I also think they're pretty common. There's a lot of devs out there yeah, in the Laravel world and the PHP world in general that, that are working on those same sorts of projects that, that I had a lot of experience on early on. So I think the other thing that that, uh, should be thought about is when you're doing troubleshooting, you also should have some sort of like error monitoring tool. And, you know, we're huge fans of that, but uh, like Bugsnag or Flare. uh, Mm -hmm. And and so a lot of the information you're going to need is already going to be in that tool and you don't need to be, you know, poking around on the server. Yeah, uh, absolutely. For something like that. So Mm -hmm. I think shifting gears a little bit, the other topic was, or is it to do something, Mm, Um, you know, pulling actions on a server or whatever. And, um, that one I'm a little bit more staunch on. Uh, it doesn't matter the size of your team. Um, you need to have a history. And, and, and you can you can definitely say you ran into this where things have been done on the server and you had no idea what they were when you took over the project, oh, even as yeah. a s- single developer. Yep. Um, and, and so um, I'm much more against either a dev having access to the server just to do things, mm-hmm. or if they do, it all has to be scripted and version control and timestamped in such a way that you know there's a clear trail of what has happened whether that's php scripts or bash scripts something like ansible you know any 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 tool like that no no running things inside of tinker just because i have to do this thing real quick write a one-time script run that script you know you know so mm-hmm. that happens so i guess you could say that's access to the server but run that script and then delete the script and it, its history would be in you know version control versus what did this person do that one time inside of tinker on the production server you know, Aaron, the first time you told me about that, I was really kind of annoyed. I thought, this this is silly. <laughs> like, wh- what does it matter if I take these 10 lines of code that I could run in Tinker? Like, wh- what is the benefit of packaging this up as a command, committing it to version control, pushing it out as a deployment, and then running that command? But it has saved me. And so you, you've won me over. And and even that history aspect of it, because there, there's a, a project I was just touching where... We did a whole bunch of data migrations and things now over two years ago, and I had to look at it again. And I did look through Git history because we we deleted some of those commands even after they weren't needed anymore. But mm-hmm. looking in Git history, it was kind of a nice way to replay some of those one-off quote-unquote tasks and and get that context back without having to write documentation or detailed notes about it. So you've you've won me over. You've convinced me. You win. Yeah, I, I I think though, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it. Like when someone's listening and saying I'm a single person shop, how yeah. can I get it? How can I like not have access to the server when I'm the only one that does something? I, I think it's a simplification to talk about whether developers should have access to the server. 
it's more of these other things that we've kind of let, you know, went into mm-hmm. is like, are you using the right tools for what you're trying to accomplish? Are you, are you making a trackable history? Um, are you, um, you know, following any of the, the rules required in your infrastructure? And then one more I'll put on there is, are you following any of the rules that are required with your certifications? So if you're PCI compliant, mm, yeah. you can't necessarily like deploy the code if you've written it, you know, d- different levels have different things. So I think uh, it really matters there. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a more, it's a more complex question than, than should developers have access to the server. <laughs> um, if you just asked me that, I'd probably say probably not, but I would, I would say, but they should have visibility. And they should have the ability to do things to the server, just not necessarily access, which is kind of fine grained when you think about it. Yeah. As with so many things in the development world, it's, it's nuanced. There's all sorts of pros and cons and context you have to take into account. So I've been thinking about how tough it must be. And I know, I know many people will disagree but how tough it must be to be a dog. <laughs> no, <laughs> hear me out. First of all, sometimes you leave them and they really, they really love you. So they notice what you do when they leave and it's put on your shoes. So they go and destroy them. So you can't leave. And then they get yelled at They're like, come on, I just want you to stay here. Or they don't, they don't understand mistakes that happen or, or stuff like that. So maybe it's dark and dogs probably can see decently and, and you can't. And so they're just laying there and then you trip over them and you start yelling. They're like, I'm just laying here and you tripped on me and now you're yelling at me. Or when you go to a place and you don't notice, but there's a no dog sign. And then suddenly everyone's really mad that they're there. They can just see everyone's just staring at them like, Rah! so what other reason do you think it might be difficult to be a dog? <laughs> um. I will admit I have given almost no consideration to what it's like to be a dog. You know, one interaction I've observed because we have we have an older dog, a small dog, a little Shih Tzu, and we just got a new a, cat. A cat? Yes. Oh, so you have two cats. <laughs> okay, I see what you're doing. But, um, <laughs> no, so the cat has tons of energy. The dog's a little bit older and really never had much energy to begin with, so... There are different energy levels. And one thing the dog will do when he gets nervous is he'll wag his tail, which Mm. the cat thinks is like a really cool thing to jump at, which (laughs) makes the dog more nervous. And it's this infinite cycle. So I, I imagine um, that's probably kind of difficult for a dog, you know, to, to think about how another animal is viewing its own actions and it's actually making something worse for itself that it's trying to avoid. Or I guess the differences in sizes of dogs, mm-hmm. like you, two dogs are just hanging out and one can jump up on the couch and cuddle. And then the other one, you know, you're like, get off the couch, you drooling animal. Cause it's yep. so big and so large. And yeah, I, I, I would think that'd be tough. I guess I think the, probably the most difficult thing in my mind of being a dog is you ask for them to protect the house. And then when someone comes up to the house and they start barking, you bark at them and then they're supposed to stop but you're yelling like i I think that's super confusing like protect the house except for if i'm gonna bark then you don't bark right yeah or they're supposed to identify like the doorbell is not dangerous but like somebody breaking in the middle of the night is like to a dog those are both threatening so why wouldn't you bark at both yeah or you yell at them because they hear doorbell on tv like they don't get what's going on (laughs) 
you know, like, why did you, it's probably like, why did you install surround sound if you didn't want the doorbell to make me run and attack the door? Well, and to be fair, I've picked up my phone sometimes when I heard like the iMessage <laughs> sound on a TV show. So I'm probably not, yeah. not one to criticize a dog. So, so, so reasons why it's tough to be Joel. <laughs> exactly. On our next episode. Over the last couple of years, we've gathered together tons of tips and tricks and kind of whittled those down to 17. We've assembled them together into a free ebook, which you can download by visiting our website at nocompromises.io slash tips. 